There we go. I want to give you a quick update on uh, me. First of all, I have COVID. Um, Saturday night, suddenly, I got so sick in a matter of 20 minutes. It was astounding. Just at the worst headache of my life and had no energy whatsoever. Every joint in my body ached. Took two COVID tests. That's how stubborn I am. And they were both positive. So I have COVID. Praise God, this is day three. I haven't had a fever all day. Uh, first time, because before it was coming and going low fever. So I still have a little bit of low energy, but praise God, he's been very, very faithful. Um, I'm thankful to all of you so, so much for your prayers and the emails and the texts and the phone calls offering to help and to pray. And it's just been wonderful. I can't thank you enough. I'm thankful Sherry is, my wife is still well, amazingly living around me. Uh, and she's been so great taking care of me. I'm thankful to God who's been so faithful and I've got the strength hopefully to get through this. If I don't, we'll end early, who knows, but thankful to all of you and to God, the prayers and everything. I probably feel, I think about 80% better right now, believe it or not. Um, I'm still being careful, still quarantining, still resting, but just praising God. Uh, I hope to do the Bible study in person next Tuesday night, which will be 10 days of quarantining. We'll see on that. Um, last thing I introduced uh, the idea last week, just mentioned it, that Oak Christ Evangelical Free Church is growing, praise God, but giving has been down, maybe because of the economy and inflation, I don't know. But if you can donate to Oakhurst Evangelical Free Church. It's, uh, you can go to the website, just Google Oakhurst Evangelical Free Church, and you'll find it. You can donate online. You can find the address and mail a check. Just a one-time gift, whatever you can do would really help because we've got a little bit of a deficit um, this month. Okay, enough business. Let me give you the backstory of where we are in First Timothy. This is a book Paul writes to his protege, young Timothy, who's the pastor of a very difficult church in Ephesus. They've got problems with false teachers who have crept in and are dividing the church with their false teaching. We've got um, uh, all, all kinds of issues in this church. Timothy is timid. He's younger. He's tempted to leave the church and just go be with Paul and get me out of here. Paul's encouraging him to stay the course, remember his calling from God and be there and be live godly and how to handle a variety of problems as a pastor in a church. There's great lessons in this book for everyone, whether you're a pastor or not. Um, Let's see, the false teachers are majoring in the minors, all kinds of fringe issues that don't matter. Timothy's told to just teach the true gospel of God. Um, so now we're going to look at favoritism that's occurring in the church, the Christian work ethic, what it means, and uh, also we'll discuss the love of money and contentment, which is the part I can't wait for in this discussion. Anyway, since nobody's here in this room with me, but you're all there, uh, if you're awake, say amen or wave. Beautiful. Nice to see all of you on there. Okay. First Timothy, we're in chapter five. Grab your Bible. We left off right around verse 17. He speaks of the elders. This is a word for leaders in a church who are pastors, who preach and teach and govern the affairs of the church. So it's a general term. It's never one elder that rules a church. It's always a plurality in the Bible. Make sure that your church is 
governed that way, not a one-man show. I heard of a friend sent me an email today that he's leaving his church because it's a one-man show. No accountability for the pastor. Verse 17, the elders who, of chapter 5 of First Timothy. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So as we said last week a little bit, and we kind of did this kind of quickly, this particular verse, these are leaders of the church who are preaching and teaching. And in chapter five, verse three, the word honor is used of widows. And there it's talking about financial support. So most scholars think what he's saying here is that elders who work for the church and preach and teach are worthy of financial compensation. Certainly it shouldn't be a hundred million dollars with an air conditioned doghouse, but they are, it's okay for them to be, um, compensated. They're also due, obviously, the respect that that verse talks about, but it's, it's talking primarily about um, that they're worthy of double honor financial support based on, based on verse three. Um, let's see. There you see also what elders are supposed to do besides governing the church, preaching and teaching. One of the qualifications for elders is that they're able to teach the word preach the word, encourage others to obey and what have you. Um, let's see, pastors being or leaders of, of churches or uh, bodies being uh, worthy to be paid goes back to Deuteronomy 25, Luke 10, 7, 2 Corinthians 11, and Galatians 6. I'll talk about that. Okay, let's move on. Verse 18. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out grain, out the grain, sorry. And the worker is worthy of or deserves his wages. So it's talking clearly about being able to pay a pastor a fair uh, wage. Don't muzzle an ox when it's treading or threshing grain. Has to do with an ox, an animal that is working at a farm threshing grain. You wouldn't. He's working hard for the farm. You wouldn't want to muzzle him so he can't eat some of that grain. If he gets hungry, he's working on it. He deserves to eat uh, as part of his labor or result of his labor. Um, and then the other one, the worker is worthy of or deserves his wages. Same kind of thing. That it's okay to pay a pastor. Uh, or leader of a church. Verse 19, now we get into uh, a great spectator port, sport and not in a good way, in a bad way. In churches, often there's a great sport called criticizing pastors, accusing pastors of things. So Timothy is instructed by Paul in verse 19, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. Okay, so this is the idea that someone is accusing the pastor of a, a, a fairly major sin that might cause him to not be able to lead or preach or teach at that church anymore. He's had some great moral failing, he's stolen money, uh, whatever it may be. Okay, but people can throw around gossip and what have you. Timothy is instructed, don't even entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. This is Old Testament, goes back to, as well as new, where in court, everything had to be confirmed by two or three witnesses, who, by the way, were interviewed separately, so they, there couldn't be collusion. They're saying, yeah, I believe what, I agree with what he said. They're 
tested separately. They had to actually be witnesses. It couldn't be, I heard the same gossip you did, so I'm a witness too. It had to be that they were witness to whatever the great offense was. It could even be teaching heresy, that the Bible isn't really true, a lot of it's false, Jesus isn't really the Son of God, it could be all kinds of things. The point is, don't entertain those unless there are two or three witnesses and who are willing to stand up and say, this is what I have witnessed myself. Um, so uh, if the pastor does not repent, and that is the goal for the pastor to be repentant or the elder and eventually restored, but we'll see in a second, Timothy's also going also to get advice to not be quick to ordain somebody or restore somebody. Oh, you sinned. Okay. He's had a half an hour to repent. Let's bring him back kind of thing. Very important. So two or three witnesses, very, very uh, important that that's done. To show you how crooked the church had gotten in the Middle Ages, um, the uh, church protected, Catholic church, protected corrupt bishops by changing this rule. Are you ready for this? And saying that you had to have 72 witnesses to the same offense by a bishop or an elder, same word, before you could convict. Their way of protecting their own, the bishops. Two or three witnesses to confirm an accusation. Okay, look at verse uh, 20. But those elders who are sinning, meaning present tense, they've been warned and they're still sinning, you are to reprove or rebuke in front of everybody, publicly, before everyone, so that the others may take warning. King James has so that all may fear. The point here is that is okay once there's been a confirmation of a major offense by a church leader and they've been warned about it and it's been repeated to them, if they're still sinning, they need uh, somebody, the other elders need to go to the church and say, the leader here, whatever his name is, has been warned. We've confirmed with witnesses that he has been sinning in this way. He is not willing to repent. He's living in sin, this, that same sin. So we are currently rebuking him publicly in front of you all. That will do two things. Hopefully, it will make the sinning elder leader of the church, lead one of one of many, uh, repent and and uh, seek to reconciliation, stop sinning, in other words. And but it will also create in the church a healthy fear. The message that is sent then is that this church does not put up with sin. There's nothing worse than a church that preaches righteousness and the abstaining from sin, and yet that same church, and there are some that do this, winks at or looks the other way when, yeah, so-and-so is doing that, but hey, everybody's welcome here. It's to be the sort of situation where if they're not willing to repent and they've been uh, approached privately and then with a few elders, if they don't uh, show a willingness to repent, it is okay to um, publicly ask them to repent or remove them if they don't. Matthew 18 is the place to go for more on this regarding just regular members of churches that won't repent. Uh, 
The church that allows sin is allowing a cancer to grow in that church that is going to ruin things, especially if it's a leader of a church. And it is found out. We've seen that with Jim Baker, with Jimmy Swaggart, with so many Christian so-called leaders, pastors who sinned and it was publicly exposed. And the, and the media, the unsaved world media, just loves that. They love scandals regarding Christians who are hypocrites kind of thing. So um, let's keep rolling. Uh, those elders who are sinning, yeah, verse 20, reprove before everyone so that others may take warning or fear. Verse 21, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus. You can already tell this is a serious thing he's about to say. Verse 21, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, the angels that didn't sin and, and become demons and side with Satan, to do something. Keep these instructions without partiality, favoritism, and to do nothing out of favoritism. So he's charging him. He's really kind of putting him under oath to agree to this. Don't be partial. Timothy may have an elder friend who he's very close with in the church who's sinning. And he may think, ordinarily, I would confront the guy, but he is my buddy. And he's saying, don't show any partiality. Remember, the Bible says that God is no respecter of persons. Sometimes churches respect um, persons in a bad way by showing favoritism when a certain member or elder, let's say, is a huge donor to the church. Well, we're going to have to look the other way on that guy's sin uh, because he's a huge donor, and that's showing favoritism. Don't show any favoritism. Do it without partiality because that's the way God judges absolute fairness. He's calling him before God, Jesus, and the angels. By the way, God and Jesus will judge the world, and the angels are called witnesses of the judgment uh, in Jude 6 and 2 Peter 2. Um, partiality we covered when we studied the book of James in chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 9. It is a total sin. For example, back to the, to the uh, wealthy member of the congregation to say, oh, come on in, Senator so-and-so. You sit right up front and kick the guy out who's homeless or very poor and put him in the back standing up. Very, very bad. God hates that sort of thing. Um, there has to be fairness. The other uh, passage that's often cited is Galatians 3, right around verse 28 and 29, which basically says, my paraphrase, at the foot of the cross in Christianity, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. What that does is breaks down every possible thing you might show preference towards someone about. Slave or free has to do with social strata in terms of wealth. Someone's a slave is very poor. Someone who's a free man uh, has more wealth. Don't show any distinction between either one. At the foot of the cross, we're all equal that way. Jew or Greek has to do with race. Greek is a way the Jews referred to all non-Jews, which are Gentiles. So no racial um, prejudice or distinction in Christianity. 
God does not care what race we are. God does not care whether we're rich or poor in terms of his favoring rich over poor or the other way around, poor over rich. And then the third one, male or female. There are roles the Bible dictates for males to lead in some things and roles for females, things they're supposed to do. But at the foot of the cross, God is no respecter of males over females or females over males. Absolute equality at the cross in terms of salvation. This is radical because for the Jews in Judaism and Old Testament uh, doctrine, Jews were greatly favored over Gentiles. In fact, Gentiles had to become Jews in order to commune with God. They also greatly favored males over females. Females couldn't study the Old Testament, the law. Um, okay, so let's keep rolling. Hopefully you're still awake because I am, and that's amazing enough. Um, let's see, uh, we already talked about that. Verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now, sometimes we talk about the laying on of hands in terms of someone sick and we lay hands on them. That's not what's being talked about here. The subject, the context, when you talk about what's the context, you're talking about what was he talking about right before this and right after this, but especially right before this. The context of this passage is um, leaders, elders, and when people were leaders or elders, when they were vetted and checked out and chosen as elders, they were um, uh, ordained publicly and formally with the laying on of hands by the other elders. So he's saying, don't just grab somebody who's been a Christian for a month, or he's a good buddy, and I haven't really checked him out, but I want him on this elder team. Don't be hasty. Don't rush it. Take your time to check people out. He's going to talk more about that in a second. Um, some scholars think 22 is also talking about the laying on of hands for restoration of somebody who was an elder, who was sinning. He's been removed as an elder, but now he's come back and said, okay, I've repented from that sin. It's been two weeks. It's all good. Can I be an elder again? Let's come on, buddy. Let's lay hands on him. He's saying, don't be hasty. Wait and see. There's no rush. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't share in the sins of others. What he means there is if you lay hands on someone to ordain them and you haven't as a, <coughs> excuse me, an elder, a leader of the church, and he hasn't truly been vetted or checked out, he becomes a liability as a sinner and you didn't know it. You are sharing in his sins, especially because of how visible his role is as the leader of the church. So what he's really telling him there is um, be careful who you ordain as a leader, as an elder of a church. Look at their lives carefully. But Paul very hastily in the same verse 22 says, keep yourself pure. Watch others. Watch yourself, Timothy. You're an elder. Keep yourself pure. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, one of the Corinthian books says. Verse 23, change of pace here, change of subject matter, although I'll show you why it might be related. Verse 23, interesting verse, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. This is interesting. 
Okay. From this verse, you can see that Timothy is currently doing what? Only drinking water. You say, well, what's wrong with that? <clears throat> Excuse me. The water in those days was extremely uh, uh, questionable, sometimes more pure than others. Sometimes there was bacteria that were making people sick. So the wine that was used in those days had way less alcohol than a glass of wine would today, way less. But the alcohol in the wine was what people drank, at least partially, to purify themselves from bacteria and other stuff that might be in the water, uh, organisms of some kind or another. So he says, stop drinking only water. He was abstaining from alcohol. Is that okay to do? Absolutely. But Timothy has got some stomach problems and frequent illnesses. This may be tied into this whole subject of leading this very troubled church where it's stressing him out. If you've ever been stressed out, you can get an upset stomach. It's not just here stress. It manifests itself in your body somewhere else. So he's saying, Stop drinking only water. I'm skipping the wine for a second because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Translation, Timothy is often sick. So why doesn't Paul just say, claim your healing, name it and claim it. Just call yourself well and you will be well. Just claim the healing that you deserve. Why doesn't Paul say, um, have some, somebody with the gift of healing come and lay hands on you? This is late in the, uh, in the formation of the Christian church. It's in the 60s in the first century. And the sign gifts were, to some extent, diminishing. And, and starting to be uh, much more and more and more rare. He doesn't say any such thing. In Acts 19, which is much earlier, Paul is sending prayer handkerchiefs that he has touched to certain places, and people are getting healed from those. The sign gifts are still present. This is quite a while later. Paul doesn't have miraculous powers at his command or his control. Um, obviously, Paul would pray for Timothy to be healed, as you just heard me pray for a bunch of people, but he's not doing any of the name and claim it stuff, which is called positive confession. It's in a lot of Christian churches. I spoke with a brother today via email um, or emailed with him who said he's leaving a church for this very reason, the positive confession thing. Anyway, um, so what he's doing is prescribing what was in that first century, one of the medicines people used. They also used olive oil. It, medicine was in its infancy in the first century. So some doctors would use uh, wine, again, way less alcohol. Can, doctor, can God heal people? Absolutely. Does he still? Absolutely. Can God also use doctors and medicine? Absolutely. Um, both. And so that's why sometimes when someone's having surgery, we pray for healing before the surgery, that the surgery wouldn't be needed. But we also pray that the doctor would be given skill and wisdom and that God would use his hands to correct whatever the problem is. Both are legitimate. Um, 
and God can intervene supernaturally, as we said. Um, so it's interesting that Paul doesn't say, claim your healing. Paul doesn't say, uh, have somebody with the gift of healing touch you, you know, lay hands on you. It's very much of a rare thing already in the 65, 67 AD when this is being written. Um, so is this a command for all of us to drink a little wine? Absolutely not. Specific to Timothy's case, if you want to have a glass of wine and aren't going to get drunk, I think that's acceptable. Sometimes you err on the side of caution and you don't want to send the wrong message so that you don't drink wine as a Christian to not give others uh, a reason to criticize or maybe a weaker brother who's got a, a problem with alcohol and alcoholism. You don't even want to tempt him with that sort of thing when you're around him. So it's all goes back to keeping yourself pure. But in this case, he's got stomach problems. I think he's stressed out, Timothy is, from dealing with a church that is so wayward in so many ways. So take a little wine for your frequent illnesses because of your stomach. Verse 24, now he, that was sort of a parenthesis. Now he returns to the subject he was talking about, which is ordaining people to be elders or restoring some who were elders who have sinned. And he says, the sins of some, verse 24, are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, verse 25, good deeds are obvious. And even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. Okay, what's going on here? Some sins are well hidden. Let's face it. There are people who are hypocrites, who are phonies in Christian churches, who are nothing more than really good at hiding their sin, putting on the Christian face and the Christian vernacular. Amen. Praise God. Uh, I'll pray for you, those kind of people. Uh, and they're regarded as holy just because they're so good at hiding their sin. So he's saying that all good works are always eventually revealed. They'll be shown. But sins sometimes are so hidden that it's only after someone dies and then there's the judgment day in the future that those things are found out. But ultimately, all sin is found out. In fact, God, nothing's hidden from his eyes, amen? And you can't hide your sin and neither can I from God. In the same way, the good works that's, this is an interesting thing, because Jesus talks about good works and says, when you're doing something that's a good work, try to do it, if you can, anonymously. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, don't do the good deeds with the goal of getting self-aggrandizement and getting people to go, oh, you're so good that you did that. That's so kind that you did that for the church. Um, so back to 24, the sins of some are obvious. In other words, it's just out in the open. It's obvious the guy, everybody sees that he's having an affair or he's a, a drunk or teaching false doctrine. And it reaches, those sins reach the place of judgment. That's the judgment seat of Christ ahead of them. They're already there. But the sins of others trail behind them. Those are the ones that are hidden from your view and mine, not God's, but your view and mine. This is another reason to not be hasty picking somebody and saying, we've checked him out for a couple of days. Let's make him an elder. 
really check them out. At my church, we interview people, we take them out to lunch, we kind of test them on some things and really ask around and make sure we're dealing with the right person. Several months at least uh, process, even more actually. Um, the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. Verse 25, in the same way, good deeds are obvious. And even those that are not obvious can't be remain hidden forever. Eventually, they'll be found out. Don't ever do something good for the kingdom of God. And even though no one knows, don't ever think, does God even know that I did this? He knows. Don't do it for the reward. Do it in gratitude for the unbelievable goodness God has shown you, the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness, the kindness, the love, the patience that he had with you, all of the above. All right, um, that's the end of chapter five. We're gonna jump into chapter six and uh, for 10 minutes or so, and then we'll take our two minute break uh, to give you a chance to wake up. Anyway, chapter six, this is the final chapter of First Timothy. He's going to cover some controversial doctrine uh, or subjects like slaves and masters, whether they're saved or unsaved, we're going to talk about. Um, I want to give you a little background on this. When Americans hear the word slavery, we think uh, Black people in the South being whipped, mistreated, beaten, killed, raped, even just horrible things happening. In the Roman Empire alone, there were 60 million slaves. It was commonplace, and it was very little of it was like what I just described in the South in the 18 and 1700s in America. Most slaves were simply poor people who had to work for someone else. They didn't have a little business doing um, carpentry or gardening or sewing or whatever. That, that was very seldom done among poor people. Instead, they would often sell themselves being destitute, very, very poor, to a master to provide for themselves and maybe their families food, water, shelter, a place to live, even clothing. Many slaves were be in that situation because there was no bankruptcy laws. There was no welfare, food stamps, unemployment, social security, and there was no other means of support for them. They're so poor, they would rather offer themselves as slaves. True, some were being abused, as was the case in uh 17th century uh, and 18th century America. Um, let's see. No, I meant 18th and 19th century. Did I? Yeah. Well, anyway, you know what I mean. 1700s and 1800s. Um, let's see. If a person was in debt in that culture, there were no prisons for people that were in debt, but instead the person who was owed the money had a right to have that person be their slave to work off the debt, or he could sell the person to someone as a way of recouping his losses that he had loaned to the person for whatever reason. So sometimes slaves were offered freedom and the masters were so good to them 
that this is written about in, in history from back then, that the slaves would be offered freedom and they'd say, no, I'd just as soon stay here. You treat me well. Some were even treated like family members. Um, Christians have been the people more than any other group in the West that have um, led the charge to abolish slavery. William Wilberforce in 1883, a Christian in England, led the efforts to stop slavery in England. And later in the U.S., Christians led efforts here to stop it, including Abraham Lincoln. You might have heard that name. Um, it's not politically correct to say it. In history books in school, Abraham Lincoln was a pretty devout Christian, as was George Washington. Something like uh, 90, 95% of the signers of the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, were all Christians back then. But anyway, we digress. There are some great books by Barton on that subject, by the way. Um, okay, so that's the back story for this chapter with regard to slavery. Let's dive in. Chapter 6, verse 1. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. In other words, the Bible does not condone slavery. It does not call for revolutions and armed uh, resistance to slavery. It just acknowledges that it's, it's the way it is for 60 million in the Roman Empire and in many other uh, cultures. It acknowledges it. It basically says, Christians, stay in the place where you are uh, when you become a Christian, but work as unto God. Work. Christians ought to be known for being the hardest workers. So if you're under the yoke of slavery, that's where you find yourself, he says in verse one, consider their masters worthy of full respect. The best way to look at this in 21st century America is to think of it as employee-employer relations. Somewhat different, but in that culture, a slave would work for a master and in exchange be given food, water, clothing, shelter, place to live. At least that sometimes more. So if you're under that yoke, consider your masters worthy of full respect. In other words, treat them with respect. Christians ought to have that, um, in that culture, that reputation of being uh, respectful of those in authority over them. Why? Verse one still, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Because if Christians get a reputation as being the ones who are always rebelling, the ones who are always um, not only protesting, but even rioting and heading up armed revolts against their masters, or their employers, if Christians get the reputation of being poor workers who aren't respectful, respectful of their employers, then it impugns Christianity by, by putting, giving Christianity and Christ and our doctrine a black eye. That's all he's saying there. We ought to be hard workers who work as unto the Lord, uh, as it says elsewhere. So um, God's glorified when we work hard. If we're lazy, it gives Christianity a black eye. So if you're still working, this is for you. You ought to work as hard as you can 
work as if God is your boss, that proper attitude. Um, let's see. We actually work for God ultimately. Let's take a brief uh, detour and go to Colossians chapter three. So from first Timothy, take a left and go back maybe six books or so. Uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter, what did I say? Three, I think, didn't I? Yeah, 322. Colossians 3, 22 through 24. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you, when they're watching, to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord, even when they're not watching, work hard. Whatever you do, here it comes, verse 23, whatever you do, Christian woman or man, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Okay, let's go back to 1 Timothy. Almost time for a break, but not quite. Let's see. People may judge Christianity by our conduct, conduct as workers, the way we work for others. So um, let's look at verse 2. Those who have believing masters, separate category, I'm a slave, my master is also a Christian. The temptation was for me, the slave, to say, hey, we, we're both Christians, we're, we're equal, you have no right to tell me what to do. He's saying, remember that your role as a servant or slave is different from his, even though you're equal at the foot of the cross, um, you still have to work hard for that person that is your boss. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they're fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. That's a little hint for the Christian master. Take extra good care of your slaves and be caring and loving to them. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. Some of these things that are, he brings up may have been happening in that church in Ephesus that Timothy is the pastor of. We're not sure, but a lot of scholars think that's the case. That's why he's bringing up the slavery thing kind of out of nowhere. Verse three, if anyone teaches otherwise, we'll come back to that word, and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who've been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means, is a is a means to financial gain. Go back to verse three. Are you still awake? Say amen or wave. Okay, beautiful. What's going on here? If anyone teaches otherwise, he doesn't just mean with regard to slaves, which is the immediate context. This is the last chapter of the book. He's kind of wrapping up the package and putting a bow on it. He's saying, everything I've taught you in this book, Timothy, is sound doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles. If anybody teaches otherwise, what does that mean? That's any doctrine anybody can teach, including me or anyone else, that is contrary to God's word. That's what otherwise means in this sentence. This is, that's important. 
If anybody, even if it sounds good, even if it kind of makes sense, if you can't back it up with scripture or the person teaching it can't, you are to discard it. And now he's going to really read them the riot act, those that are teaching otherwise. Who's he talking about? The false teachers in the Ephesus church, no question. That's who he's talking about. And does not agree to the sound instruction of, number one, Christ. If what he's teaching doesn't agree with Christ's teaching and to godly teaching, that's the second phrase in that verse uh, three, he's talking about the teaching of the apostles, which expounded on the Lord Jesus's teaching. So he's talking about all of scripture now. If it doesn't line up with scripture, then verse four, they are conceited and understand very little. No, nothing. They've missed the whole point. Conceited means self-absorbed, so full of their self, themselves that they can't see that Christ is Lord and they're not. They're conceited thinking that they're smarter than and no more than God, Christ, the apostles, and the word of God. So that's anybody that's teaching anything other than sound doctrine. Those people are conceited. They understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels, and they're majoring in the minors again, and quarrels about words, the definitions of words. They get so stuck in the mud on these things that they miss the plain things, which are the main things in scripture. I've often said Christianity is, on the one hand, so simple that a child of three or four can understand it. The basic idea of God becoming a man, dying for the sins of those who will believe, who died in our place, lived the perfect life, rose from the dead. We who believe in that are saved. So it's sort of like saying Christianity is like a pool of water and it's only 18 inches deep. Even a child can wade in and swim. And yet, if you dig deeper, Christianity is like an ocean so deep that Jacques Cousteau and the best submarine can't even find the bottom. You can always keep learning. There's so much to it. And it's like an onion. You can just keep peeling off layers. I invite you to do it and dig deeper in the scriptures. I'm going to stop right there and take our two-minute break. Just going to turn my screen off. Don't go away. I'll be back in two minutes. Thanks. Don't go away. All right. We are back. Find your seats if you got up to stretch or get a snack, or wake up, or whatever. Um, we're talking about these false teachers that are <clears throat> not teaching according to what, <coughs> excuse me, what Christ said, nor the uh, apostles, not teaching according to the word of God. They love arguments. They love controversy, uh, and they are failing to give the Bible the rightful place as the final court of arbitration, arbitration for everything we believe and teach. Very, very important. So they love to debate, to argue, and they're getting them their own uh, nests feathered by making money from doing this. We'll see in a second. There's another bad doctrine besides teaching something that's not according to the Bible. This is prevalent in the U.S. today. Please watch for it. And it's this, my wife and I call it Christianity light, L-I-T-E. What does that mean? 
It's sort of like Pepsi light is watered down Pepsi. Budweiser light is watered down Budweiser. Christianity light is, we don't preach on sin or repentance or hell or judgment or, you know, cleaning up your life. Everybody's okay here. We're just preaching love and kind, nice things. Like that guy whose initials are J-O that has a huge ministry in Houston and blinks a lot. Don't get me started on him. That's Christianity light among some bad doctrine as well. Be careful of that. It's as dangerous as false doctrine because people go there, think they're getting fed, and they're spiritually starving because they're not getting fed the true gospel. Okay, let's keep rolling. Uh, let's see, uh, picking it up in the middle of verse four, they have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words. And look at the fruits of their ministry that result in envy, strife, malicious controversies, and whoops, sorry, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction. None of those things are good, obviously. So they're creating division, whether they intend to or not. They're just trying to get followers who come after themselves, if you will. Um, so uh, let's see. The, taking the focus off of Jesus, they're just creating friction and 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 total division. Notice the creating friction, constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth, truth, and who think godliness is a means to financial gain. Boy, that's the health and wealth gospel, the name it and claim it stuff, which says you can claim your healing. You can claim I'm rich. There's a lady named Marilyn Hickey who has a sermon where she says, pick up your purse, ladies, or your wallet, men, and speak to your checkbook or your wallet or your purse and say, oh, you're so full of money and you're creating wealth. Totally not biblical. The point is, we are called to the master's table, okay? Jesus is the master. Some people come to the master's table to get stuff off the table. What's in it for me? Wrong question. What's in it for Christ, who deserves all the glory and all the praise and our service? We don't come to church saying, what can you do for me? We come to church saying, lead me, God, teach me, and what can I do to help this body of Christ? So some come to get stuff off the master's table instead of coming to the, for the right reason to the master's table, which is fellowship with God, Jesus Christ, who loves you and who died for you. So <clears throat> let's keep rolling. This is a great verse, uh, verse six. I just want to look at verse five again to see if we covered that. Okay, I think we did. Um, they think godliness is a means to financial gain, that God will make you rich. Some people come to Christ thinking he's going to solve every problem I have on planet earth, and they are almost always disappointed because you still have problems as a Christian, don't you? I do. Um, we all do. The point is God is bigger than our problems. We see our problems are thing, the things that we have with a totally different eye and attitude now that we have heavenly uh, aspirations and attitudes. We Our real home is heaven. Verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. I won't do it, but we could 
we could spend an hour or two on that one verse. What's godliness? It really comes from the word God, the words godlikeness. Um, obeying God and living a true Christian lifestyle. Godliness with contentment. Okay, what's contentment? Being okay with your state of being as it is, with what you have. The focus here is needs are being met versus greeds. Keeping your eye off of what other people have. Why does she have, he have way more than I do in whatever way it may be? Talents, money, a, a bigger uh, house or a nicer car or whatever. Godliness with contentment, having our needs met by God, enough to satisfy a, per, a Christian who knows, ultimately, I am a citizen of another country called heaven. And all this stuff is temporary, and it's going to burn. You can't take anything with you, right, when you die. There's no hearse that has a U-Haul trailer pulling all the guy's stuff because he can't take it with him. It's living with an eternal perspective Advertising today always tries to make you discontent with what you have and why you need this better car, this better product, so that you'll be more popular or whatever it may be. Uh, I think we want to go to Philippians 4. Let's do that. You went to Colossians probably a minute ago. Philippians is one book to the left of that, one book before it. Go to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, this is... Um, one of my two top two or three favorite chapters, by the way, in the whole Bible, the whole thing. It's incredible. Um, Philippians chapter four. Look at verses 11 through 13. Verse 11, Philippians four. I am not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content What? Ever. Sounds like a valley girl, right? Whatever. I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances, whatever, even with COVID, even sick, even in pain, even poor, even with strife in your life at work or in a, with a family member or whatever. Yes. Paul says, I've learned the secret. I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. You say, how can you do that? Verse 12, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. He sometimes lived with plenty of stuff, sometimes in need. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. You say, okay, that's pretty incredible, but you haven't told us how to do that. Paul, please tell us, verse 13. I can do all things or everything through him, Christ, who gives me strength. Once Christ is your strength, is your treasure. Remember, Jesus says where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Once Jesus is my treasure and heaven is my treasure and obeying him and pleasing him is my treasure, then the things of this world grow strangely dim and money doesn't matter that much and having a bigger house and what have you doesn't nearly have the effect on me that it does uh, for someone that's living in the material world and just wants more and more. 
By the way, the word more is the answer to the question, how much is enough worldly-wise? Even for the wealthy, they want to get wealthier. There's a guy named Blaise Pascal, sorry, who was a Christian mathematician and philosopher. He came up with this concept. I've mentioned it before. You may have heard me mention it. He came up with, <coughs> excuse me, the idea that inside of every human being, whether saved, you know, a Christian or not, inside of every human being is a vacuum, a hole. And every human being sentence, uh, senses it. Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. That's that emptiness, that there's something more than all this. It's all kind of empty. So sensing that vacuum, that hole in our lives, there are people who try to stuff things in there on their own to fill it, whether it's money or power or fame or sex or bigger cars and bigger houses or Rolex watches or PhDs or awards or Olympic medals, whatever it is, people keep stuffing stuff in there. And that's where addiction starts because alcohol seems to stuff it. And then it doesn't work. So you need more alcohol or more drugs or whatever. The point is only God can fill that perfectly. And it's counterintuitive. You think I can do it. I can find what will make me um, have that hole in my life filled. By the way, don't count on the people around you to fill that void. I'm not saying be a hermit. We need each other. We need fellowship. We need the love of the brethren. We're supposed to gather together. I'm bummed we couldn't tonight for obvious reasons. But my point is, don't count on your spouse, your kids, your parents, your friends to fill that void. It's important that you have all of those and nurture those relationships. They will never fill that void. Only one thing can, Jesus Christ, not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Confucius, not atheism. Nothing will fill it like Jesus Christ. Um, if you desire, if it's hard for you to be content, if you desire more than you need, you've got a problem with this um, and you need to bring it to the Lord. Material goods themselves don't corrupt us. It's the desire for more. C.S. Lewis has a quote where he says that for many who are rich, it doesn't satisfy them to be rich and have this much stuff. It just satisfies them to have more than that guy, which is a sick thing, kind of, right? Keeping up with the Joneses sort of thing. So, um, I love Psalm 23, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. The next phrase is, I shall not want. I shall not want, meaning I shall not be in a state of need. I shall not be in a state of want. Because God himself, the Lord, is my shepherd. He's the one that takes care of me, feeds me, protects me, corrects me, directs me. We could go on and on. The point is, with God as my shepherd, that's all I need. He's going to meet all my needs. We're going to take another brief detour in a second and go to the book of Matthew, I believe. You can start turning there as you're listening. I'm looking for it in my notes, and I don't see it yet, but I think it's still coming, so we'll keep rolling. Godliness with contentment is great 
gain. He just got done talking about some false teachers who were think godliness is a means of getting rich, getting money. He's saying, just be godly and content with what you have. That's great gain. On earth, we value, or the world system does, gold. Gold is around $1,850 for one ounce right now, something around there. Um, and yet God gives us the picture that in heaven, gold, which is so valuable on earth, is so worthless in heaven that they pave streets with it, like we do with rocks and gravel and stuff like that. Okay, the God-shaped vacuum. We talked about that. Okay, going back to the text, godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Isn't that true? Were you born with a Rolex on your little arm there? You brought nothing in. You're going to go out the same way. Can't take anything with you. He's talking about the transitory nature, the temporal, temporary nature of all things uh, material. Well, how much should I want and need? Verse eight. But if we have food and clothing, literally the word is covering, we'll be content with that. Some say the word covering includes not only clothing, but shelter, you know, a roof over your head in some way. Food and clothing. That's, those are greeds? No, needs. Those are what we need. Obviously water, of course, but the, he means that with foods. Food and covering, we will be content with that. I'm getting off the ladder. I'm getting off the comparison chart of who's got more than me and who's got less than me. Those who want to get rich, verse 9, fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Let's see. Uh, we already talked about that. I'm just looking at notes here. Basic necessities. That's all we ought to be concerned with. If we have excess, that's great. We can sometimes use it to help those who don't to meet their needs. Um, it's amazing that people will live and die for, lie for, cheat for material stuff that they can't take with them to the next world. Pretty amazing. In Egypt, they would bury kings, the pharaohs, with tremendous wealth around the wrapped up corpse. And guess what? Usually, thieves broke in and stole all the wealth. The dead guy didn't take anything with him. Okay, let's go to Matthew 6. There it is in my notes. First gospel of the New Testament, first book of the New Testament. Matthew, turn there with me just for a second, because Jesus really teaches on this better than I ever could. Matthew chapter 6. And we want verses 19 to 21. And we could read it, even read more than that, but <clears throat> this is a good place to begin anyway. Matthew 6, 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. His point, you store it, it's going to rot, or somebody can, you can lose it, somebody can steal it, it could all burn down. Well, what should we do instead, Christ Jesus, verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, 
You say, I can't, I can't reach up there. How can I store my treasures? We'll talk about it. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. It, things are eternal that you're storing up there. Where thieves do not break in and steal. There's no thieves in heaven stealing people's reward. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The Bible presents the case that we are saved by grace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. Just by faith in the living Christ who died and rose from the dead, died for our sins, offers us his righteous record in exchange for our guilt. That's how we're saved. What's your point, Joe? We're not saved by the good works we do. However, when we do good works, we are storing up for ourselves treasure in heaven. When you give somebody who's in need help with your time, with your talent, with your treasure, money, whatever, you're storing up treasure in heaven. In a sense, it's like going to a foreign country where you can send your currency ahead and it gets translated to that nation's currency. The currency in heaven is good works that produce rewards. They, we don't earn our salvation, but there are rewards for things done in Christ's name. Listen, for his glory, not mine. That's not the reason for them. Um, let's see. I think we're going to go back to First Timothy, but I wanted to Oh, no, stay in. I, I messed up. Matthew, I have COVID. That's my excuse. Matthew 6, go there again, please. I already closed my Bible. Matthew 6. I forgot verses 24 to, 4, to 33. Um, let's cover that quickly. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one or love the other. He's talking about money. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon, which means money. You can't serve both. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you'll eat or drink or your body, what you'll wear, is your life not, is, is not your life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet the heavenly father feeds them. And aren't you much more valuable than they? He's saying, if God takes care of the birds, don't you think he's going to take care of you? Who are, who, which of you or who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Boy, the flowers are blooming in our yard right now. And they're incredibly beautiful. It's all God's doing, in other words. If that's how God clothes the grass, clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone, and, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The pagans run after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He'll provide. But here's the key. This is why I read this whole long passage, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given or added to you as well. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Make that your priority, not making money, not getting that promotion, not that PhD, not 
making yourself more beautiful or more wealthy or whatever. Seek first God's kingdom. Make that your priority. He says he guarantees you everything else will fall in line and you'll have enough. Does that mean I'll be a billionaire? No. Millionaire? Maybe not. But you'll have everything you need. And that's what it's all about. Okay. Are you still awake? Say amen or wave. Most of you I can't see, but I can see about 10 of you. Okay. Let's keep rolling. Um, we left off. Uh, we could take nothing out. Food, yet being content. Verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation because it's addictive. You want to keep getting more. And a trap, the picture is of a trap that catches an animal and holds it there with it. You can't get away once you're, you've made that your life's ambition a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires, I'm still in verse nine, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It's been said that nobody on their deathbed <clears throat> who's dying ever says, I wish I had made more money. I wish I had gotten that promotion and done a better job at work. People don't say things like that who are thinking clearly. They think if they're wise, I wish I had spent more time. And I know you're, we're all going to think this, me included. I wish I had done more for the kingdom of God. I wish I had lived more for his glory than my own. I wish I had made Christianity, God's kingdom, my priority. That's what it's going to be all about when we get to that place in our lives. Verse 10. One of the most misquoted verses in the whole Bible is verse 10. How many of you have heard the saying, money is the root of all evil? Not in the Bible. Here is verse 10. By the way, there were several rich people, <clears throat> excuse me, who were believers in the Bible. Abraham, David, Solomon, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Job was wealthy. Um, I, before we move on, Psalm 62 is so awesome here. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Even if they increase, praise God. Don't look too seriously at them. Don't set your heart on them. Go back to verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves. Goes back to the trap. Uh, analogy with many griefs. So what does this mean? Literally, it reads, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not the root. It's, it is a root, and it's not the money. It's the love of money, an improper, putting it in an improper perspective as an idol, if you will. So Love of money is the key here. Remember, money is not evil intrinsically. You can use it to do tremendous good, right? And hold it with an open hand so God can take out of it or put into it whatever he wants to. The thing about money is it makes us conceited. We tend to look at what we have with too much pride instead of realizing it's all gifts. Uh, let's see. What's ironic about verse 10 is the words love 
of money. In the Bible, we're commanded to love two ways. Vertically, we're commanded to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Vertically, love God. We're supposed to love our fellow human beings, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we're supposed to love. So it's ironic that replacing God and loving others is money, this thing that's so transitory and that you can so easily lose it. Mike Tyson, the boxer, was at one point of his life worth $330 million and he ended up declaring bankruptcy. Talk about being able to lose huge amounts of money. It's very transitory. So love of money, it's a trap. Seek godliness more than you seek money. We're supposed to love God and each other, not something as transitory as money. And uh, Ironsides, who's a great commentator on the Bible, writes this. If you're afraid that you might have too much love for money, start giving some away and see how you feel. If you feel glad, still feel safe, great. But if it almost breaks your heart, it's time to pray to be freed from covetousness. One of the Ten Commandments, right? Coveting. Okay. Love of money, root of all, a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. It became more important than their relationship with Jesus Christ. And they've pierced themselves with many griefs. It didn't turn out well. They were trapped. That's the piercing of a trap. Verse 11. But you, O man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Now, this is an interesting thing. I never saw this till this week uh, and last week reading the commentaries. In the Old Testament, just a handful of people are called man of God. Uh, Moses, David, Elijah, and Elisha, that's it. Four people in the whole Old Testament. In the New Testament, one person is called man of God, and it's Timothy. Paul is greatly honoring him, calling him a man of God. It recalls the Old Testament. Remember who you are. You, man of God, verse 11, flee from all this. He's saying run from it. When you start to get tempted by money, by lust, whatever it is, flee from it. Split. Run. And pursue righteousness. Rightness with God. Obedience. Pursue godliness. Godlike qualities. Pursue faith. Faith, remember, is given to you by God, and to each is given a measure of faith, the book of Romans says. The point is, God gave you some faith. The question that's always asked is, well, if, well, then why don't I feel that faithful? If everybody gets a measure of faith, the answer is faith is a muscle, and the more you use it, the more it grows. The more you step out in faith, the more you study the word, the more you use that faith, the more it grows. The less you do, it can atrophy. Something else can take your affections away. Pursue faith. Pursue love, both for God and for those around you. Pursue endurance or perseverance and gentleness. All good qualities. Those are the things to pursue, man of God. But listen, you can say in verse 11, man of God, 
about yourself. He's talking to you here too. He's talking to the women of God. He's saying for a Christian, flee from all those things, from all that greed and love of money, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. What else? Verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence, presence of many witnesses. Fight the good fight. This is being written in the era when the Greek games were in full force and very popular. He's using athletic um, terms and even soldiers terms. <clears throat> you say, well, I'm really a pacifist. I don't really want to fight. Listen, we are as Christians living on planet earth outnumbered. We are behind enemy lines to, to an extent. So in that way, remember Christianity is in some cases a battle, but we're given protective gear to wear, aren't we? Read Ephesians 6, um, the breastplate of righteousness, etc. But we're also given one weapon. Do you remember what it is? There's only one offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit. It's the word of God, the Bible. So we are to fight, fight against the flow of the world, which wants to sweep you and I away into desiring the things the world thinks is valuable. We have to fight that that current in the river we live in. Have a soldier's determination. There's three enemies of the Christian in the Bible, the world, the world system that promotes certain things and kind of minimizes God and religion. The world, the flesh, our own desires that are built into us because of our sinful nature, and then the devil. The world, the flesh, the devil. If you do word studies on those, you find out the Bible says, flee the world, deny the flesh, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. In any case, we're moving on because we're almost out of time. Mm -hmm. uh, Okay, so fight the good fight of faith. Take, this is still verse 12. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take hold of it. Value it. Keep that in the forefront of your mind that you have eternal life because of Christ Jesus. What attitudes would change because of that? Perspective in terms of money and all um, material goods would change. Number two, eternal perspective. I want to do stuff that's going to last forever in heaven, right? All the good you can do here. It will make you so thankful that you have eternal life and you didn't deserve it, that you'll want to please and serve the God who gave you the unbelievable gift of salvation. Let's keep reading in verse 12. Take hold of that eternal life Notice, to which you chose freely on your own, not what it says, to which you were called. God, whether you know it or not, when you came to faith in Christ, you thought you came on your own. I'm so spiritual. I investigated different religions, and I found Christianity because I'm so smart, and I'm so spiritual. Eh, wrong. God called you. John 6, says, no one can come to me, Jesus talking. No one can come to me unless the spirit who sent 
unless the Father who sent me draws him. God draws you to Christ. That's why you came. You can't even take credit for your own faith and certainly not for your own salvation. That eternal life, you recall to that. And then he talks to Timothy specifically and says, when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses, Timothy had confessed Christ and his belief. Probably he's talking about his ordination when hands were laid upon him. He confessed Jesus Christ as his Lord. He's saying, don't forget the commitment you made, man of God, to serve the God of the universe. Don't forget who you're serving and the high calling that it is. I'm going to take a drink of water. Um, let's see. I think we finished verse 12. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we already talked about that. Verse 13, in the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it goes on from there, but let's, let's digest that first. So he's sort of saying, I'm placing you under oath. I'm saying this to you in the sight of God himself. Remember who you serve, God himself, who gives life to everything, plants, animals, human beings. And he means make it personal. He gave you the life you have, both the eternal life, but even the physical life. Think of God, who you're serving. Think of Christ Jesus, who made the good confession before Pontius Pilate. What's going on there? Okay. First of all, Jesus, when he was before Pontius Pilate, if you remember, was asked, <coughs> excuse me, um, mm -hmm, I want to find the right Verse, uh, yeah, verse 13. Um, Jesus confessed to Pontius Pilate the truth, even though he knew it would get him killed. Um, he says, are you a king? And Pilate's, and he tells Pilate, yes, I am a king. And he even tells Pilate the truth about Pilate's own power. He says, you would have no authority over me unless it was granted to you by my father in heaven. So don't go back on your confession that you made. Jesus didn't. Um, Jesus in the Gospels is finally convicted and killed because of his good confession in Mark 14, where the high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God. He's placing him under earth. Are you under oath? Sorry. Are you the son of God? And Jesus says, it is as you say, and you're going to see me sit, coming in the clouds of heaven in judgment and all that. The high priest tears his garment, which is a sign of extreme disgust, and says, what more evidence do we need? Crucify him. Guilty. Jesus could have said, I'm, I'm, I plead the fifth. I'm not saying anything. He's willing to die for you and me. So he makes the good confession. He's not ashamed. And we neither should we be ashamed of the gospel. God gives life to everything, this verse says. Okay, you can't look at that verse without really, if you contemplate it, it means that God is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Yes, creation, Genesis 1. No, I don't believe in evolution. And 
Um, Romans 1.25 says, they, unbelievers, exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who's forever pleased. pleased. Oh, sorry, whoever praised. Amen. Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, Mao, all evolutionists, all anti-Christianity, killed more than 100 million people. All were evolutionists, Darwinists. Um, so we need to remember the commitment that we've made to Jesus Christ, not shy away from the fighting the good fight. And um, we are to keep, verse 14, this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ to the end. We'll talk more about that next week, and we'll conclude this book and probably start 2 Timothy. I've got plans for after 2 Timothy I'll tell you about soon. Anyway, I'm going to close up shop right now because we're late. Let's pray, and we'll get out of here. God bless you. Thank you for your prayers. Um, I'm really feeling pretty well, and I owe it all to God and who answers prayer. Let's pray. Thank you for this time, God, we could spend in your word. What an awesome thing. Help us to never practice that sort of favoritism that winks at sin because we know the person or they're wealthy or powerful. Help us not to favor anyone over anyone else. Give us your attitude to be totally fair in these things, Father. Help us to value the importance of Christian work when working for a, a boss, God, that we really are working for you. Help us to give Christianity a good name of a, a belief where people work hard always. Keep us from the love of money, God, by world standards. Every single person hearing this is wealthy by world standards. Every one of us uh, is wealthy. We pray, God, that we would see what we have for the temporary things that they are and realize that the permanent things are the faith and the word of God that we have and your glory, Father. May we live for those things. Teach us to be content with what we have. We pray that you would bless these truths to our hearts and minds, and may they change the way we live, God. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise God. I got through 90 minutes of talking with uh, my condition. God bless you all. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for your prayers. I love you all. See you next Tuesday, hopefully in person. I'll email to let you know and on Zoom. God bless. Have a great evening.